good morning. morning. We turn your Bible to Ephesians chapter 6. To clarify that strange ritual we just did, it's called the offering. (laughs) The church in previous history used to do that until we were strangely interrupted. But praise God, we're getting back to normal. Amen. If you would look with me in Ephesians 6, we're starting in verse 1 this morning. Apostle Paul writes, children, obey your parents in the Lord. So this is called the household household code. Um, The Apostle Paul here has directed his attention to the house at this point, the family, as he's considering how the gospel can be played out in the world so that the world might see the beauty and the glory uh, and their need for, for the Lord Jesus Christ. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Bond servants, a more literal translation, slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for these instructions in the home. We recognize that the family, the Christian family, is a vital tool for your purposes in making the gospel of Jesus Christ known in the world. And we pray that this text would play a role, a massive role of sanctification for us all as it is preached this morning. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. A few years back, there was a dispute in Britain between the Treasury Department and the Foreign Office. And that dispute had to do with who, what ambassadors in the various nations that Britain would send out would have the privilege of driving Britain's Rolls Royce. And and so the Treasury Department was concerned about money. And so they said that just a few ambassadors should have this car, like in places like Washington, D.C., or Moscow, or or Paris. Well, the Foreign Department wanted every ambassador to drive this, this luxurious car. And their reasoning was, was quite interesting. They said most people in a foreign capital have never been to Britain. But when they see that beautiful car gliding down the road with the UK flag on the hood, they'll say, well, I've not been to Britain, 
And I don't know much about Britain, but if they make cars like that, then Britain must be a wonderful place to live. Well, analogously, the, the world does not know much about the true and living God. They certainly don't have saving knowledge of the living God, but when they see a family transformed by the gospel, they may say, I don't know much about the true and living God, but if he can make a family like this, he must be a remarkable and wonderful God. And, and that's what Paul is addressing here in our text today. Paul is saying Christian households are intended to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ to a watching world in God's purpose to sum up all things in heaven and on earth in Jesus Christ. As we've seen, that is the, the central theme of Ephesians. And we saw in chapter 5, last two weeks, that he addressed husbands and wives. Marriages are intended to preach that gospel. And now he turns, he directs his attention to children of those homes. And the first thing we see here, that obedient children are an apologetic for the gospel. Now, when I use the word apologetic, it just simply means a defense, a defense for the gospel. Look with me in chapter 6, verse 1. He says, Now, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. Now, the context infers that Paul is speaking to pre-adult children who still live with their parents. Now, notably, the children, it's assumed, are in the church service. I just have to mention that a moment. There are some churches where children march out before the preaching of the word. But in the first century, it was assumed that the children were present to hear. Now, that's not to say we shouldn't have nurseries, but children who have the capacity to understand argumentation uh, they should be present. It's assumed that they will be present in the worship service because the worship service is a vital means of grace. It is a vital means by which God communicates his grace in Jesus Christ to the people of God. Uh, this word obey is also interesting here. It's a compound word in the original language. And if you were to translate this literally, it would mean to listen under, to listen under. Of course, in the Bible, to listen or to hear is to respond in, in faith. And so the assumption here is that the child is under the authority and recognizes the authority of his or her parents. This child listens under. And Paul says this extends beyond just kind of a, an external uh, behavior, an external conformity to the wishes of his or her parents, uh, because he uses the word honor here. He says, obey your parents, honor your father and mother, which means that a kind of a sullen, uh, angry fulfillment of duty is not obedience 
and it certainly is not honor. The biblical worldview establishes parents as the authority in the home. Now, I think that's been reversed a lot today in our present culture. But it's interesting that, for instance, in Romans chapter 1, when Paul is describing a culture that's being given over to the flesh and carnality, exchanging the truth for a lie, in Romans 1.28, he describes this culture as one in which the children are disobedient to their parents. And then in 2 Timothy chapter 3, when he tells Timothy to mark this, in, in the last days there will be difficult times, and then he gives this kind of vice list, 19 vices that will characterize those days. One of those vices is that children will be disobedient to their parents. And so Paul is reminding children here, and remember the Bible's on a rescue mission. It's addressing us to reverse the fallenness in all of us. It's addressing our fallen condition. And so here, Paul says, you need to remember that your parents are your authority and you are to obey them because it honors the Lord. Now, certainly this has application for adult uh, children as well. Uh, for adult children, there is a somewhat of a different relationship than pre-adult children. But even older children, adult children, are called to honor their parents. Uh, we honor our parents by spending time with them, by respecting uh, their counsel, by heeding their counsel, by meeting any needs that they might have. Uh, but this assumes something, doesn't it? This assumes something very important. It, is, it assumes a converted child. Now, why do I say that? Well, notice he says, obey your parents in the Lord. The Lord there is the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and so he's using this language of union with Christ. This is obedience that flows out of our union in Jesus Christ. And so when you are, when you repent of your sin and trust in Jesus, his righteousness is imputed to you. So that when God looks at you, he sees perfect righteousness. That's what's called ju justification. But at that moment, he begins to impart Christ's righteousness to you as well. That's called your sanctification. And so it's the life of Christ being lived out in the one who has been united to him. And he says, children who are believers have this imparted righteousness. They have the, the, all the resources they need by the Spirit of Christ to obey these imperatives. And notice he says, this is right. This is the right thing to do. When Scripture gives us a command, it's giving us this command for primarily three reasons. First of all, these commands show us what glorifies God. And that's why we're here. We're here to magnify the worth of God. That's our whole purpose in life. The second reason we're given these commands is that these commands are the key to human flourishing. Uh, our hearts are hardwired for human flourishing. We, we long to flourish as human beings, as image bearers. And these commands give us the direction to flourish as human beings. But thirdly, these commands are given to us as believers so that we might serve as a witness of this gospel to a lost and dying world. And the one who is trusting in Jesus wants to do what is right. That's why Paul says, this is right. But notice as well, he gives more incentive 
in the second part of verse 2, he says, honor your father and mother. He says, this is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Of course, uh, you know here that he is appealing to the fifth commandment of the Ten Commandments. Honor your father and mother, uh, which is cited five times in the New Testament. What's interesting about the Ten Commandments, and we did a study on the Ten Commandments as we were looking in Exodus a few years ago, it's the only commandment with a promise attached to it. God promises great blessing when you honor your father and mother. Of course, it's by faith. So here, Paul here is alluding to life in the promised land. He says that you may live long in the land. He's just essentially citing that verbatim. Of course, he's writing to a primarily Gentile church. And this Gentile church did not live in the land. They lived in Asia Minor. So what's he doing here? Well, life in the land typified the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God is God's people that is redeemed in Jesus in God's place under his rule. And that rule is expressed through his, his Davidic king that we know as Jesus Christ. And every kingdom has terms for living in the kingdom. You can't come into a kingdom on your terms. You have to come on the king's terms. And here we see some of the terms of the kingdom Children are to obey their parents. And the terms here, in the sense that Paul is speaking of here, is the obedience of faith. Paul is saying there is blessing in the kingdom when you live out the terms of the kingdom. Of course, this obedience is not works. Uh, we are, our works are never meritorious. They never earn us favor with God. They are the fruit of Christ's works. Uh, Ephesians 2, Paul says, It is by grace you've been saved through faith. This not from yourselves, it's the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. But we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works. And so Paul here is referring to the obedience of faith. Paul is saying children who honor their parents in the obedience of faith will be blessed in the kingdom of God. But crucial absolutely crucial to a child's understanding of all of this is the parents role parents have a critical role unfortunately in our day uh, a lot of parents kind of um, delegate that responsibility to the youth pastor or the children's pastor parents have a critical the vital and critical role in this so that children can understand their responsibilities. And that brings us to the second part of this passage. Uh, we see spiritually proactive fathers are an apologetic for the gospel. If obedient children are apologetic for the gospel, spiritually proactive fathers are also an apologetic for the gospel. Notice with me in verse 4. He says, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. But bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Now, do you realize, and this is remarkable to me when I first learned this, there's only two verses in the New Testament that addresses parents. 
This verse in Colossians 3.21 is the only two verses in the New Testament that addresses parents. And what else is interesting about that is that in both verses, it's the fathers who are directly addressed. Now, Paul would in no way deny the importance of mothers. And Paul just said in, in uh, verse uh, 2, to honor your father and your mother. A mother has a critical, critical role in the home. But Paul goes after the fathers. And, and what that does is it conveys two things. First of all, when a command is given... It's given to us to address some aspect of our fallenness. Fathers naturally defer this responsibility. They, they naturally ignore this responsibility. Mothers, much more than fathers, are going to be concerned about the spiritual well-being, generally speaking, of their children. And so this is... A rescue project. Paul is on a rescue mission. He's coming after fathers because we are naturally spiritually passive in the home. Second reason he goes after fathers is that the primary responsibility of the health of a family stops with the father. There's a trickle-down effect the primary responsibility of the health of a family begins and ends with the father. Now, now, Western culture used to assume this. Nancy Gibbs, writing in Time magazine of all magazines, notes that before 1830, most parenting manuals were all directed to fathers. Now, why did previous generations assume that the fathers lead? Because cultures, the culture assumed, Nancy Gibbs says, the Bible was the primary instruction manual for parents, and the Bible directs its parenting instructions to the fathers. In other words, if you get the fathers right, it trickles down in the home. And fathers here are given both a negative and a positive command. The first command is a negative one. Notice he says, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. And so the instruction in verses 1 to 3 assume parental authority. Yet when Paul writes to the fathers here... It's the constraint of authority that he's urging. And, and this contrasted remarkably uh, with the norms of his day. By the way, the norms of any culture are generally upside down and wrong. And that's why the word of God has to come on a rescue mission. And so Paul is urging restraint of your God-given authority in this first negative command. At the head of the Roman family was the father who had absolute sovereign authority over all of his members or of the family. 
William Barclay, a commentator, says he could sell them as slaves if he wanted to. He could, sell, he could sell his wife, he could sell his children as slaves. He could make them work in the fields in chains. He could take the law into his own hands and punish as he liked. He could even inflict the death penalty on his children. And Paul says completely different is the Christian father who, who is not even to provoke his children. This would have been massively countercultural in 62 AD. Of course, to provoke means to frustrate, to, to discourage, to dishearten, to embitter. Of course, there's many ways you can do that. Uh, you can provoke your children by overprotection, by showing favoritism in the home, by depreciating their worth as image bearers. Uh, you can frustrate them, provoke them with unrealistic goals by no affection, a lack of standards. Children need and desire standards. You can provoke them with neglect, excessive discipline, public shame, public embarrassment, hypocrisy. Like when a parent demands self-control from his child while losing his temper in the process or the mistreatment of their mother. The negative uh, influence of parents or the potential negative influence of parents on children has been summed up so well uh, by a writer named Dorothy Law Nolte. In an article she wrote, Children Learn What They Live. And here's what she said. If children live with criticism, they learn to condemn. If children live with hostility, they learn to fight. If children live with fear, they learn to be apprehensive. If children live with pity, they learn to feel sorry for themselves. If children live with ridicule, they learn to feel shy. If children live with jealousy, they learn to feel envy. If children live with shame, they learn to feel guilty. Of course, they'll bring that baggage into their adult years. And perhaps this negative command comes first, not because Paul just thinks negatively, because he but because he recognizes that it would be hard to instruct and teach and disciple a child if this child is frustrated and discouraged. And that brings us to the positive command here. Paul says... Do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up. Now, what's interesting here, you don't get this in the English, but this word, bring them up, was used in chapter 5 just a few verses ago in verse 29. It was translated there, nourish. Look with me in chapter 5, verse 29. No one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes, same verb, nourishes it just as Christ does the church. And so Paul is saying a father has the responsibility to bring his children up, that is, nourish them. Nourish them, um, which means to withhold this kind of nourishment, creates malnourishment. 
in the child. But how do we nourish a child in this way? He's not talking about the actual feeding of the child, as important as that is. It's a different kind. This is a spiritual nourishment. He says, in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Now that word discipline, uh, it's the same word that's used in Hebrews 12, where it refers to God demonstrating his love for us in that he disciplines us as his children. It's one of the marks of sonship. One of the blessings of our adoption is that the father loves us so much that he will not allow us to remain in our present state of sin and rebellion. And so he, he demonstrates his love by disciplining us. I, I don't discipline the children who live next door to me because they're not mine. But I show my love for my children in disciplining them. And so it's a discipline for the purposes of their conformity, their nourishment in Jesus Christ. Okay, so that is the discipline. Of course, this discipline has to be controlled and it has to be consistent. One of the reasons children get frustrated is is parents can be very inconsistent in their discipline. So one moment a child can say or do something and the the parent doesn't respond in any way. And then the next moment, because the the parent may be in a bad mood or or tired or hungry, the, the, the parent lashes out. That can frustrate a child. We've probably all been guilty of that. Well, that can really provoke a child. And so this discipline is to resemble the discipline of the Father, the Heavenly Father, whose discipline is always consistent. It's always controlled. He does not lose his temper in his discipline of us. Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones says, when you are disciplining a child, you should have first controlled yourself. What right have you to say to your child that he needs discipline when you obviously need it yourself? And that is what Paul is referring to here when you provoke a child. Furthermore, the goal of the, of the discipline is not so that you can vent. All right? That's not the goal of discipline. It's so that your child can be conformed into the image of our Lord Jesus Christ. Notice as well, we're to nourish them, bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. This word instruction is literally putting into mind. They're not born with a natural saving knowledge of the living God. And that's one of the key responsibilities of parents is to put into mind. This is verbal education. Now, our roles as teachers to our children extend to many arenas. For instance, when a child is is first born and and, and is really young, our youngest children uh, need to learn initial obedience. So what is initial obedience? They need to understand what no means. They need to understand what stop means or don't do that means. And if they don't, they need to recognize there's discipline that follows that. And and this is critical. It's crucial in protecting them from harm and enabling them to function within the family and within society. 
One of the real problems today is children have no concept of authority. They don't fear, they don't have a healthy fear of adults. A second obedience that we're to teach our children is social obedience. They're to learn manners and to learn social graces. I've got a, a, a very good friend who, who's from Cleveland, and he says up there they, they're not taught to, to say yes, ma'am, and no, ma'am. He thinks it's strange that we teach our children to do that. But I believe children need to learn uh, to say yes, ma'am, and no, ma'am, and yes, sir, and no, sir. Uh, they need to learn to say thank you and, and please. Of course, we recognize the social conventions of any culture have nothing to do with one's standing with God. But it's still critical that parents teach their children social obedience. A third aspect of obedience that children are to be taught by their parents is civic obedience. We need to learn to teach them to, to be law-abiding. Uh, they need to learn the laws, not to cheat, not to lie, not to steal, to submit to authority. And then there's religious obedience. This is what we teach them when we, we tell them how important church is. So we bring them to church. We show them, and I believe in my estimation, a parent's calendar and schedule should center around church life. Now, that sounds almost radical today, but it, it's the first time in church history it's been radical. A family's calendar and schedule should center around church life. We're teaching them the importance of religious obedience. So we teach them the Bible. We teach them the importance of reading the Bible. We teach them the importance of prayer, of going to church. But to be sure, obedience in all four areas here, initial obedience, social obedience, civic obedience, and religious obedience, they are good for the family and they're good for society, but they're also achievable by every single child, even those who have not been saved. That brings us to the caveat in all four of these areas. No obedience in any one of these four areas is meritorious. If a child learns initial obedience, if a child learns social obedience and, and civic obedience and religious obedience, not a single bit of that obedience can earn them favor and standing with God. In fact, a compliant child could lose sight of the importance of the gospel. There are children who are really compliant and they, they do everything you ask them to do. But that obedience is not saving obedience because our obedience is, is, is filthy rags to a God who is infinite in his holiness. Jesus said he came to save the lost and only the lost are qualified for salvation. And that brings us to the most important aspect of obedience that we're to teach our children. And that is the obedience of faith. Children need to understand that no matter how good they may be, they may be the most mannerly and courteous and submissive child around. 
Their righteousness is rubbish. Philippians 3, verse 8. We need to teach them the law so that they can see how short they fall, how sinful they are, so that they will be crushed by it and see their need for a Savior. Richard Baxter, the Puritan, used to tell the story often. He said, imagine if you went up to a man in a crowd and just said to this arbitrary man, you've been pardoned, you've been pardoned. That man would look with you with, with disdain and confusion. But if you went up to a person who had a noose around his neck that was about to be hung for treason, and you said, you've been pardoned, that one would fall to his knees in gratitude and, and, and thanksgiving. It's this latter obedience that Paul has in mind because he says that it is to be instruction of the Lord. That is the primary calling of the parent. And in this particular case, the spiritual leader of the home, the father. Well, that brings us to a more controversial part of this passage. And that is... He now directs his attention to an extended part of the family. In that day, it was the bondservant, or more strictly speaking, the slave. And here's what Paul says. Now again, he's thinking in terms of how to make the gospel look as attractive as it really is to a lost and dying world. He's more concerned about that than anything else. So he's, he has directed his attention to children. He's directed his children, uh, attention to parents. And now he directs his uh, attention to house slaves. And what we're going to see here in, in verse 5 is the goodwill house slave is an apologetic for the gospel. Now look with me in verse 5. Bond servants... Obey your earthly masters. And I think Paul there is, is, is giving us a subtle dig at that institution known as slavery. They're just earthly masters. It's temporary. He's not justifying it. We're going to talk about that in just a moment. In fact, uh, I spoke more about this last Sunday night in a sermon on Philemon. If you have any interest in that. I spent a lot more time on this. But he says, bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would obey Christ. Now the ratio of slave to free in, in the first century Roman Empire was one to five. So there were a whole lot of slaves. Um, they estimate there were 60 million people in the Roman Empire. 20% of that 60 million people were slaves. Now, slavery was due to being a prisoner of war, uh, kidnapping. A person would, would willingly sell himself or herself into slavery if they had financial uh, concerns and they needed to, to earn uh, their way out of debt. Um, there are a variety of reasons for, for being a slave. In fact, being born into slavery was one reason to be a slave. Now, even though there were good relationships between masters and slaves in the first century, basically, the plight of a slave was not a happy plight. 
In fact, tradition, going all the way back to Aristotle, classified slaves as living tools. That's all the dignity they had. That was the way they were seen. They were just seen as living tools. And at first sight, Paul seems to endorse status quo. But actually, he is subtly undermining it. Subtly, because the church in the first century had minority status and therefore had no political power whatsoever to change an institution. Rather, the purpose of the church was to learn, to grow in, and spread the gospel, which in time, Paul recognized, would change the culture. Paul recognizes the importance of of the church and the health of the church in changing the culture from the inside out. And had Christians been branded as anti-government in the first century, they would have been greatly hindered in that. And we can make a very strong biblical case against slavery. First of all, Scripture is known to regulate undesirable relationships without condoning them as permanent ideas. So, for instance, in Matthew 19, Jesus says, it's because of the hardness of your heart that God permits divorce. God doesn't like divorce, but he permitted divorce because of the hardness of the heart. I love these words from Wayne Grudem. They should be on the screen. The Bible doesn't approve or command slavery any more than it approves or commands persecution of Christians. When Hebrews commends readers by saying, you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession. That does not mean the Bible supports the plundering of Christians' property. It only means that if Christians have their property taken through persecution, they should still rejoice because of their heavenly treasure. You see the point? Paul is speaking there about what the believers in Hebrews was experiencing uh, because of their faith. They, they were having their property plundered, and he's not commending that. He's commending the way they responded to the plundering of their property. It only means that if Christians have their property taken through persecution, they should still rejoice because of their heavenly treasure. Similarly, when the Bible tells slaves to be submissive, it does not mean the Bible supports slavery, but only that it tells slaves how they should respond. Here's how you magnify the worth of God in Jesus Christ, given your horrible circumstances. Second, several times in the New Testament, the seeds of the abolition of slavery are sown. Uh, let me just share these words from Philemon. I, we, we looked at this text last Sunday night. But verses 15 and 16 of Philemon were critical in the abolition of slavery. Listen to what Paul tells Philemon. Philemon had a runaway slave named Onesimus who was converted to Jesus Christ. And so Paul writes this letter to his friend Philemon, who was a Christian but also a slave owner. 
And here's what he says in verse 15. For this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever. No longer as a bondservant, no longer as a slave. Do you get that? No longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a bondservant, as a beloved brother. Paul recognizes the gospel not only changes people, it changes relationships. It changes institutions. And so you see here that the New Testament plants these seeds for the abolition of slavery. Third, Paul explicitly in, endorses the possibility of a slave obtaining his freedom. In 1 Corinthians 7, he tells the slaves in Corinth, if you can be free, then be free. And in fact, it's significant that, that here Paul chooses to address slaves at all. By addressing slaves in the church, he was acknowledging their worth. He was acknowledging their, their importance and their status before God. In fact, he, he relativizes um, the slave's master by reminding them both in verse 9, that we'll get to in a moment, that of their ultimate master. Both of them ultimately have the same master. In fact, elsewhere, Paul will say, and for instance, Galatians 3, 28 and, and Colossians 3, 11, that in Jesus Christ, slaves have equal status with their masters. There's neither slave nor free man, Paul says. So Paul is not endorsing slavery. This is a text to address people who are in a horrific situation. But the question is, how does this text benefit us today? Well, I want you to note the motivation that these slaves are to have in, given their tough situation. Here's what he says. He says, you're to obey your earthly masters. He says, with fear and trembling. Now, I believe that that fear and trembling actually is fear and trembling not to the master, but to their Lord. A reverential awe. You're doing this as unto the Lord. He says, notice also with a sincere heart. Now, what does it mean to be sincere in your heart? It means being in reality what you appear to be. Being in reality what you appear to be. It's a character which corresponds with the appearance. So this is to be the motive of the slave, but this, Paul's also teaching us this is the Christian life. With sincerity of heart, he says, as you would Christ. Paul is telling the slave, when you're obeying your master, earthly master, who does not have, um, who's not worthy of that kind of obedience, it's as if you are obeying Christ himself. And he says, not by way of eye service, but as people pleasers. He says, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, like the Pharisees who like to pray in public and who like to serve in public. Again, this is not only a word to slaves, this is a word to every Christian. These are the proper motives of obedience right here. But as bond servants of Christ, 
Ultimately, your obedience and your submission to any authority that God has placed over you is an opportunity to demonstrate you are a, ultimately a bondservant, a slave to Jesus Christ. Notice, doing the will of God from the heart. Of course, the heart is the causal core of our being. Psalmist David wrote in Psalm 51 that he delights in truth in our inner being. It's doing the will of God from the heart. In other words, you desire to do it. It's not, you're not doing it by compulsion. And then notice, rendering service with a good will. It's not begrudgingly, not out of compulsion, not out of mere duty, but with a good will as to the Lord and not to man. That is such an important verse for the Christian life. That's a word not just for slaves, that's a word to every Christian. This is a word to every Christian in a hard situation. Whether it's a hard marriage or perhaps a hard place where you work. And we see here the inner motives that honor God. And the fact that we have been granted all the resources we need. We've been blessed in the heavenly places with every spiritual blessing in Christ we have been given spirit wrought. We've been sealed with the spirit and granted all the heavenly divine resources we need to do just that. To obey from the heart with a good will as unto the Lord and not to man. And here's the glory of the gospel too. When that's not evident in our lives, we have a gospel. And so when I'm obeying God and, and, and these realities are not being played out, my heart is not right, my, my attitude is off, here's the glory of the gospel. You have a Christ who covers you. We sang about him this morning. A fountain filled with blood. We, we have a Christ who covers us with his righteousness and cleanses us with his blood. And it's in preaching that gospel that the Spirit uses to get our hearts right. All right? And so this is such a critical passage for us. And we are left with no excuse given the greater to lesser argument. If Paul expects by apostolic mandate for even slaves to obey Christ from the heart, how much more so we? No matter how difficult, or, well, Brian, you don't know my situation. Paul says, I'm writing here to slaves. But you've been granted the resources in Jesus to obey. And now Paul, in verse 8, gives us the motivation for such obedience. Notice he says, in verse 8, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord. Of course, this good is the fruit of faith. It's not good in and ourselves. He will receive back from the Lord whether he is a bondservant or is free. No doubt many slaves had performed good deeds that weren't noticed. Probably likely that most of their good deeds, the Christian slaves that is, were not noticed and therefore were not appropriately rewarded. And perhaps as a result of that, they would have been tempted to do their acts, their good deeds, so that their masters could see them 
and properly reward them. Hey, that's, that, that hasn't gone away. Uh, we all have that pharisaical tendency, don't we? And Paul is saying, nothing you do by faith goes unseen by the one who can bring real reward. You can trust him to reward you. And notably, the, the slaves would have not had a, an earthly inheritance, but they can look forward to a more important, more enduring inheritance. Yesterday we, we buried, or Friday we buried Lucille. And Lucille, if an angel appeared to you at five years old and said, uh, the Lord will give you a deal, you can live to be 98, every single one of us would take that deal. But all the earthly inheritance that, that Lucille accrued for 98 years now is completely irrelevant. But the fact that she was in Christ, that's all that matters for the rest of eternity. And here Paul is saying, you may not have an earthly inheritance. Your slave master may be brutal. He may never bless you for your obedience, but you have an inheritance to come that cannot perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for you. It's a far more important inheritance. In that day, he says, social status in this life will be irrelevant. I love what Psalm 62, 7 says. Those of low estate are breath. You know what the psalmist is saying? If you're of a low estate in this world, uh, you're not wealthy, you're not well-known, uh, maybe you're even poor financially, and you're in a, a tough place in this world. Those who have a low estate are by the breath, but those who have high estate are an illusion. Paul says, he agrees with the psalmist, it's all a big illusion. On that day, social status will be irrelevant. And speaking of that, he comes to that final part of verse of this passage. Good-willed masters as well will be an apologetic for the gospel. Look at me in verse 9, the final verse of this passage. Again, he's not endorsing slavery. He says, masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening. He's planting seeds that will ultimately be used by William Wilberforce and many other Christians to bring about the abolition of slavery. You do realize it was the Christian movement that put an end to institutional slavery. Knowing that he who is both their master and yours in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. Now this would have been scandalous in the first century to say this to a slave owner. Stop threatening your slaves. We've been outrageous. But again, Paul is planting the seeds that would serve as a holy subversion to institutional slavery. And he gives two motivations here. Both the masters and the slaves will be accountable to the same master in that day. They'll both be accountable to the Lord, and the Lord does not judge with partiality. We do. Uh, we've seen famous athletes get off of murder because they had very successful lawyers defending them. But in that day, no one will be judged impartial. This is so critical. And I think what's even remarkable about this passage is that the, the name Christ our Lord is referenced in every verse. In other words, obedience stems not just from being redeemed by Christ, but in beholding Christ. 
He says, notice, he says, rendering service with a goodwill as to the Lord, he will receive back from the Lord uh, who is both their master and yours in heaven. Paul is saying the obedience of the extended family, starting with children, parents and wives, children, and husbands, and fathers serve like the Rolls Royce did for Britain as an apologetic for the kingdom of God and the gospel of the kingdom. This is his word to Fisherville this morning. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this passage. We pray that you would teach us, instruct us, discipline us in the truths of this word. I pray for every Christian home here. Uh, not a single Christian home has perfected this passage. Every Christian home here falls short of the glory of God in some way. And we thank you that we have a gospel that covers us, a Christ who covers us, a Christ who came and lived in a manner that we cannot and will not live in complete obedience and fidelity to you. And then went to the cross and took the judgment that we deserve because of our disobedience, because of our sin, and was raised from the grave, signaling that the dead had been paid for those who trust, and ushering in a new creation world, with the down payment being the Holy Spirit, who indwells each one of us to obey this passage. Lord, fill us with your spirit today. It's not a it's not an accident that Paul begins this entire section in Ephesians 5.18 by saying, do not be drunk with wine, but instead be filled with the Spirit. This call to children is a call to the Spirit-filled life. This call to fathers and mothers is a call to the Spirit-filled life. This call to, to slaves in this case and, and masters is a call to the Spirit-filled life. Fill us with your Spirit, and I pray... Lord, if there's any here today that have never trusted in Jesus as Savior, as Paul describes him, as Master, I pray they could recognize there's coming a day when the Lord will not judge with partiality. All of our sins will be open and laid bare, and yet you have made provision for those sins in Jesus, and I pray today that they would trust in Jesus. And we ask this for his sake. Amen.